All right, we're going to go over some of the traumatic brain injury portion of the chapter now. Um, epidemiology with this trauma is the leading cause of death between ages 1 and 44, and more than 50% are due to brain trauma. About 1.7 million TBIs occur annually in the USA. There tends to be a bimodal distribution from about 15 to 25 years, and then again greater than 65 years old. And the elderly tend to have a higher mortality, and there's a greater preference towards males to females, about 2.5 to 1. Uh, motor vehicle collisions are the most common cause in adolescents and adults, with about 50%, followed by violence. And the falls are the most common in the elderly. Overall, I've seen that falls are probably a little bit more overall because they occur a little bit more frequently in the elderly. Um, alcohol is detected in about 86% of TBI patients. Improved acute medical care has improved uh, mortality overall. About 90% of TBI are classified as mild or concussions. And the mortality in TBI is about 14 to 30 per 100,000 per year. And the decrease in death by motor vehicle accidents has occurred, but increased by firearms and violence. There has been a higher amount of uh, self-inflicted brain injuries as well from, from firearms uh, due to suicide attempts. There are about 52,000 annual deaths due to brain injury. In geriatric brain injury, the risk of TBI increases after, grade, after age 65 and are more frequently due to falls. Uh, severity and mortality are higher mortality as well, about 1.2 to 1 male to female in the elderly. So it's much more of a younger male population, and as you get older, it still is a little bit more male, but not as high. Uh, with regards to pediatric TBI, uh, this will be reviewed a little bit more in the uh, pediatric section, though it is the leading cause of death in children greater than one year, and there are transportation-related is the most common, about 39%, followed by falls, then sports and recreation activities, and then followed by assault or non-accidental tra trauma. With regards to the pathophysiology of TBI, there tends to be a primary versus a secondary injury. The primary injury occurs from direct disruption to the brain parenchyma from sheer forces of impact, immediate, non these are not amenable to medical interventions. These include contusions or bruising of the cortical tissue, usually anterior and front, anterior frontal and temporal lobes. This also includes diffuse axonal injury, which is an immediate disruption of axons due to acceleration, deceleration forces, and rotational forces or shear forces. They tend to cause shearing with secondary axonomy or axonotomy uh, due to increased axolema, axolemal permeability, calcium influx, cytoskeletal abnormalities, and the large thing that you'll see here is white matter petechial hemorrhages that are characteristic of diffuse axonal injury. There's also impact depolarization, which is a massive urge in extracellular potassium and glutamate, which are released, uh, which release occurs after severe injury and leads to excitotoxicity, or secondary injury. Now, the secondary injury tends to be more of a cascade of biomechanical, excuse me, biochemical, cellular, and molecular events. This comes from ischemia, excitotoxicity, which is a massive surge in neurotransmitters, which leads to neuronal damage and energy failure and resultant apoptosis. Secondary cerebral swelling can also occur, and brain swelling uh, occurs early after the acute injury, secondary to increase in cerebral blood volume, as seen on uh, CT, as collapse on, of a uh, ventricular system and loss of CSF cisterns around the midbrain. So essentially, you get so much fluid around that it pushes in on the brain and collapses the ventricles. You can also get brain edema later on after head injury due to an increase in brain water content or extracellular fluid, extravascular fluid. You can get vasogenic edema, which is the outpouring of protein-rich fluid through damaged vessels, extracellular edema, or cerebral contusion. 
You can also get cytogenic edema, which is related to hypoxic and ischemic brain injuries uh, due to failing of cells energy supply, which leads to an increase in cell wall pumping, leading to intracellular edema. Axonal injury, inflammation, and regeneration are also noted. Those are part of secondary injury. If we look at a uh, more broad view, you can, you can describe brain injuries as focal or diffuse. Now, focal injury is a localized injury immediately after the injury and can be easily visualized on CT and MRI. These tend to be cerebral contusions as above, which tend to be on the anterior poles. You can also get like an, a posterior pole as well from the coup to coup, counter coup type of injury. Focal ischemia tends to occur secondary to vasospasm after a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage or physical compression of the arteries. You can also get focal hemorrhages. These are the most common ones that you'll be tested on, um, such as an epidural hemorrhage, excuse me, an epidural hematoma with a fracture of the temporal bone, which leads to a disruption of the middle men meningeal artery and hematoma expansion. It tends to have a, a convex appearance on CT. Uh, you don't want to miss this. This tends to be uh, have an immediate loss of consciousness, followed by a lucid interval, followed by a rapid decline. Uh, subdural hematomas tend to be more of a chronic, uh, subacute to chronic issue, which tends to be shearing of bridging veins, which are more com common in the uh, very old or the very young. These tend to have more of a concave appearance and can be wide-ranging in timing of neurological deterioration. Subarachnoid hemorrhages can also occur, which are closely associated with ruptured aneurysms and AVMs, though it could be uh, due to leakage from intraparenchymal hemorrhage and trauma as well. Diffuse injury, uh, again a little bit more about uh, diffuse axonal injury. It tends to be more of a widespread cerebral injury. Um, again, diffuse axonal injury, which is unique to TBI. Grade 1 tends to be widespread white matter and axonal damage without focal abnormalities on imaging. Grade 2 tends to be widespread white matter and axonal changes or damage with focal findings, most commonly in the corpus callosum. So the difference between grade 1 and grade 2 is that there is a focal finding in the corpus callosum, and grade 3 is damage that involves the brain stem. The leading, this is, tends to be the leading cause of morbidity, including cognition, behavioral arousal, and coma in brain injury are these diffuse axonal injuries. And axonal injury is more, most common, uh, commonly a cause of unconsciousness during and following the first 24 hours. And damage is most often seen at the corpus callosum, the parasagittal white matter, and intraventricular symptom, as well as walls of the third ventricle and brainstem. Again, corpus callosum is most common, but you can also see the parasagittal white matter, intraventricular septum, and the walls of the third ventricle and brainstem. With regards to the pathophysiology, it tends to be more of an excitotoxicity, similar as above, but you can also have hypoxia and apoptosis. And MRI tends to be a little bit more sensitive than CT, though it's not always reliable and may not always be associated um, with edema initially. You can also have some penetrating head injuries, which tend to result in more of a focal deficit and correspond to the area of injury caused by the penetration. Death may be instantaneous at lower levels of the brainstem from respiratory and cardiac arrest and you're much more likely to have death of a comatose patient in penetrating than closed head injuries. It's about twice as likely to have death from a comatose patient in a penetrating injury. You can also get focal and or generalized seizures, which may occur, and they may be, uh, they may be at a higher risk in penetrating injuries than they are in non-penetrating injuries. We can't talk about uh, brain injury if we, without talking about some of the recovery mechanisms. 
Um, plasticity is probably one of the more common ones that we hear about. You get damaged brain uh, tissue, which can repair itself by morphologic and physiologic responses influenced by the environment and complexity of stimulation, as well as repetition of tasks and motivation. And there are two mechanisms that are uh, discussed, including sprouting and unmasking or reorganization. Uh, neural, neuronal regeneration or neuronal collateral sprouting involves intact axons establishing synapses in areas where damaged where damage was occurring or had occurred and may enhance functional uh, may enhance function or contribute to unwanted symptoms or be neutral this can take weeks to months after injuries uh, the second theory is the functional reorganization or the unmasking of neuronal reorganization which is essentially healthy neural structures that are not formally used for any given purpose are developed or repurposed or reassigned to new functions served by the damaged areas. So again, there's essentially healthy, the two theories are healthy brain that sprout and take over um, the function of the damaged brain, or there's um, underlying nerves that didn't have a type of a specific function previously that are repurposed to have a new function. You can also get synaptic alterations. Um, there's another theory in addition to the plasticity. Um, diaschesis and increased sensitivity to neurotransmitter levels are, are two things we're talked about. And diaschesis um, are when lesions or damage in one area or region can produce altered function in distant areas of the brain that are not served, um, that are not severed if there is a connection between the two sites. So essentially, uh, one area that's damaged and a distant area that's connected but not needed for the same function, but function is lost in both areas. Um, you have an injured and morphologically intact brain. Again, the injured brain at the focal site and morphologically intact at the distal site. Uh, but both areas are lost. And some initial loss of function can be due to depression of the areas of brain connected to the primary injury site, as well as resolution and restoration of function in morphologically intact area that parallels recovery of the damaged area. Um, some of the other theories include functional substitution or behavioral substitution. These techniques um, or new strategies may be learned to compensate for deficits. Redundancy is another one where recovery of function based on um, activity of uninjured brain areas or latent areas that normally contribute to the function and are capable of subserving that function, as well as vicariation, where functions take over, taken over by brain areas that are not originally managing that function, and areas alter properties to subserve that function. So again, those last three are functional substitution or behavioral substitution, where it's essentially techniques or strategies that are learned to compensate. Redundancy, which is where um, function is based on activity, recovery function is based on activity, and vicariation, where functions that are not usually used by that brain are taken over by other areas. Okay, when we talk about some of the other important parts of brain injury, it's important that we talk about some of the disorders of consciousness. We have to define consciousness, which is essentially the function of the ascending reticular activating um, syndrome, excuse me, function of the ascending reticular activating system and cerebral cortex. The RAS is composed of cell bodies in the central reticular core of the upper brain stem um, or the midbrain and projects to a widespread area of the cortex via the thalamic and extrathalamic pathways. And lesions that tend to interrupt the metabolic or structural integrity of the reticular activating system can cause disorders of consciousness. 
Uh, the first disorder of consciousness that we need to talk about is coma, which is lack of wakefulness, lack of sleep-wake cycles on EEG, and the patient's eyes remain closed. There is no spontaneous purposeful movement or ability to localize stimuli. There is no evidence of language comprehension, and this can last anywhere from two to four weeks or even longer. Um, the second disorder of consciousness is a vegetative state, which the difference between this and coma is that you do have positive sleep-wake cycles on EEG, but there is no awareness of the environment surrounding you, and there is no purposeful behavior. But there may be some positive verbal or auditory startle without localization or tracking, and, and eyes can be opened. Uh, this tends to be related to diffuse cortical injury and bilateral thalamic injuries, which are, more pro which are very prominent findings of uh, vegetative states. Persistent vegetative state is something that's present at greater than or equal to one month after TBI or a non-traumatic brain injury. And a permanent vegetative state is present at greater than three months after a non-traumatic brain injury or greater than 12 months after a traumatic brain injury. So again, persistent vegetative state, greater than or equal to one month for traumatic and non-traumatic brain injuries. Permanent, greater than three months for non-traumatic, and greater than 12 months for traumatic. A minimally conscious state is the third disorder of consciousness that we need to talk about. Um, there is minimal but definitive evidence of self or environmental awareness. There is some ability to, to follow some simple command following, um, object manipulation, intelligible verbalization, and gesturing of yes or no responses. There is some visual fixation. Um, there is some smooth pursuit tracking. There is some emotional or emotion or motor behaviors upon specific listening stimuli. For example, he can cry. So the patients can cry out to the voice of family members, but not staff. Um, and it can be difficult to distinguish from a vegetative state, as there may require several evaluations for differentiation. Emergence from a minimally conscious state is signaled by consistent command following functional object use and reliable use of communication system. And the prognosis is much better for a minimally conscious state than it is for a persistent vegetative state. When it comes to the treatment of disorders of consciousness, there's really no clear evidence to support any kind of therapy based on. Uh, it's a therapy-based program that will promote emergence. Uh, there's some organized treatment approaches that can stimulate early, early recognition of changes or improvements in response to interventions or spontaneous recovery. Um, some of the therapy programs include a neuromedical stabilization, which is necessary to have um, any type of recovery prognosis. Uh, preventative treatment, which includes bowel and bladder function, maintaining nutrition and skin integrity, and control of spasticity. Um, you also want to consider certain pharmacological interventions, including eliminating any unnecessary medications with selection of medications with the fewest not neurocognitive side effect profiles. You want to focus your management on agents with specific cognitive and physical functions. And some meds may theoretically enhance progression through emerging consciousness. Methylphenidate, dextroamphetamine, Dopamine agonists such as cinnamet, um, amantadine, bromocryptine, antidepressants are all frequently used. Uh, personally, I see more benefit from amantadine in an emerging consciousness type state, uh, though I think the studies have shown that methylphenidate or Ritalin is the uh, most beneficial throughout. There's also some sensory stimulation that can be used, which is widely used with little evidence and should include all five senses and try to avoid overstimulation. Some of the... Uh, Positioning that goes along with this, um, you need to that we need to uh, focus on our decerebrate and decorticate posturing. Decerebrate posturing is the extension of the upper and lower extremities and seen in midbrain lesions and compressions. It's also associated with cerebellar and posterior fossa lesions. In its full form, it can include opisto, excuse me, opistoponus, which is full back and neck arching, as well as clenched jaws, stiff extension pain. Um, 
Neocerebrate posturing tends to be worse than decorticate posturing. And decorticate posturing is typically due to a higher lesion than the decerebrate, such as a cerebral hemisphere or white matter or internal capsule ethylamic injury. And you get flexion of the upper extension, upper extremities and extension of the lower extremities. When we talk about TBI, we need to talk about the prognosis after TBI. And you try and do it with an evidence-based approach. And one of the biggest scales that we use is the Glasgow Coma Scale um, to help out with this, which assesses the depth of coma, where lower scores are associated with worse outcome, um, based on the GCS within the first 24 hours, particularly. And you want to use the highest score within the first few hours, preferred, preferably to avoid excessively low scores prior to CPR or confounded by sedatives. Sometimes this is difficult to do. A lot of times, I, a lot of patients arrive to the emergency room already intubated or sedated, or when we're assessing later on, they are still on the ventilator, and it makes it difficult. Uh, it's an eye verbal and motor scale, which ranges from 3 to 15. Uh, zero is death. Um, and overall, uh, the best motor response is the best predictor for recovery. When we talk about eye, it's a scale from 1 to 4, 1 being no eye movement, 2 being only to pain, 3 being to voice, and 4 being spontaneously. Uh, this is not eye movement, this is eye opening. So there's no eye opening. For 1, 2 is opening only to pain, 3 is to voice, and 4 spontaneously. Uh, verbal is that there's uh, one is there's no verbalization, two is unintelligible sounds, three is inappropriate words, four is confused, and five is alert and oriented. And motor responses from one to six, one being there's no um, there's no response, two being there's decerebrate positioning or posturing, three is decorticate posturing, four is a general withdrawal, five is localized withdrawal, and six is purposeful movements or following commands. So typically when we're talking about the decerebrate decorticate and general withdrawal and localized withdrawal, these are two painful stimuli, but just something to be aware of. And severity, when we talk about Glasgow Coma Scale, mild, mild TBI would be 13 to 15, moderate would be 9 to 12, and severe would be 3 to 8. There does tend to be a relationship between the best GCS within 24 hours and the Glasgow Outcome Scale. A GCS from 3 to 4 um, signifies a vegetative state or death in about 87%. A GCS of 5 to 7 is vegetative state or death in 53%, and good, good to moderate recovery in 34%. A GCS of 8 to 10 tends to have um, moderate to good recovery in 68%, and a GCS of 11 or greater has moderate to good recovery in 87%. So again, 3 to 4 is the worst, and then 5 to 7, 8 to 10, and 11 are up. Some studies do suggest an addition of brainstem reflexes, such as the Gasco Leagues, L-E-I-G-E. Um, some of these include the front frontoorbicular uh, reflex, where you percuss on the, the glabella, which results in a, a blink. You also have your ocular vestibular reflex, which is your doll's eyes, and your um, pupillary light reflex, which is where you shine a light in the pupil and see if it contracts. And then there's an oculocardiac reflex, which is the bradycardia while pushing on eyes. Though not mentioned in Cucurillo, I think it's important to discuss the corneal reflex, as well as the um, oculocephalic reflex, which is the caloric tests with the hot and cold water into the ear. These are all um, brainstem reflexes that can be considered in determining this. Coma duration has a lot to do with prognosis, and the longer duration is associated with worse outcomes. Uh, 
particularly severe disability is unlikely to occur with a coma that lasts for less than two weeks, and good recovery is unlikely to occur with a coma greater than four weeks. When we talk about brain injury in general, there are a lot of these generalizations that you can kind of see the longer it takes to come out of a coma or the longer it takes to come out of PTA, which we'll talk, discuss next, um, the worse outcome. There's no clear science to it. Um, there are just trends that, we, that have been seen that's uh, there's a lot of art that's involved with this as well. Uh, Post-traumatic amnesia is another very important thing to understand. This is the single best predictor of outcome, and the longer you are in PTA, the worse your prognosis is. Uh, resolution of PTA clinically corresponds to the period when incorporation of ongoing daily events occurs in working memory, which basically means you're able to form new memories and remember them from day to day. A severe disability is unlikely if PTA is less than two months, but good recovery is unlikely if PTA is going on greater than three months. So there's a lot of leeway there on how much you'll recover between the two months and the three months. It's, like I said, there's a lot of art to it and not a lot of exact science. There does tend to be a strong correlation with length of coma and diffuse axonal injury and PTA, but not necessarily focal brain injuries. There are two tests that we typically use to determine the PTA. The GOAT, or the Galveston Orientation Amnesia Test, um, is one that was previously used a lot more, where you would need a 75-plus on two straight days, um, which we use more common now is the OLOG, where you need a 25-plus for two straight days. And there are some charts on page 64 to 65 that talk about the recovery and correlation with PTA. Some other indicators of outcome after TBI include the, the age, uh, where children greater than five years and young adults have a generally positive prognosis, and those that are less than five or greater than 65 have a poorer prognosis. Um, the best results I've seen in there are from that age five to kind of 25 range, where you see the, you tend to see the most, the biggest recovery. And the rate of early recovery is also a great indicator, and it's based on the disability um, impairment scale or JFK coma recovery scale, uh, DRS, not disability impairment scale. Uh, pupillary reaction to light is also something to consider, where intact pupillary reflex and conjugate gaze uh, are, are correlated with a better motor or a better recovery, and most recovery occurs within the first six months. Additionally, the post-coma use of phenytoin and presence of decerebrate posturing tend to have poor prognosis. And we'll get into a little bit more with regards to TBI at another time.